Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on Air. I'm your host for this Hangout, Mary Hendra. I am the Los Angeles Program Director for Facing History and Ourselves, and have been teaching Facing History and the Holocaust in one way or another for about 20 years. Today's conversation focuses on what we can learn from history to help us consider how we can best build and maintain democratic societies that are pluralistic, open, and resilient to violence. Facing History and Ourselves recently released a new digital and print edition of our core resource on the Holocaust and human behavior, which gives much to think about in relation to this question. Thank you for joining us here today, and a special thanks to our guests for making the time to be here. You'll be hearing who each of them are in just a minute. And for those of you watching this Hangout Live, we encourage you to post thoughts, ideas, or questions via the live chat feature embedded in the video player, or you can tweet questions and follow along using the hashtag ConnectedLearning. So let's start with a quick round of introductions. And um, if each person could give us your name, where you work, and then a little bit about what brings you to this conversation today, um, that would be great. And Aliza, can you give us, can you go ahead and start for us? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my name is Aliza Luft, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA. Um, I think I've been affiliated with Facing History for, 10 years now, maybe 11, could be a decade anniversary, um, since I was an undergraduate in college, actually. Um, and my work looks at how people make decisions in genocidal contexts, whether or not to support or resist violence, and um, what influences those decision-making processes. So I'm happy to be here today and to talk about you know, democracy at risk and what do we do when we see democracy at risk. Thank you. Laura? Hi, I'm Laura Tavares. I'm happy to be joining you from Boston, where Facing History is headquartered. Um, I have been working at Facing History for over 10 years. Before that, I was a um, high school history and um, English, language art, English, English language arts teacher. Um, now at Facing History, I develop resources and I lead workshops on the Holocaust and other histories and works of literature. And um, I also was one of the primary writers of our new edition of Holocaust and Human Behavior. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of writing and thinking about history and democracy. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks. Leslie? Hi, I'm Leslie Smith, and I'm a teacher in the greater Los Angeles area um, in Roland Heights. I teach high school now, and I've known about Facing History for quite a few years, but I think I've been working with, with them as a teacher leader for, or, well, working with them for, for I think, two years now. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mary. And um, I use uh, Holocaust and Human Behavior uh, in my classroom regularly with my uh, ninth and 10th grade students. And then um, just the principles of facing history um, about choices, et cetera, with all my classes. It's just a way of thinking about both history and literature and, um, and how we do business in my room. Thanks. And Robin. Hi, I'm Robin Hernandez. I am a teacher in Whittier, uh, California. I teach at a comprehensive high school from students of 10th and 11th and 12th graders. 
I have students who are in or have IEPs, so they're all in a special education class that is modified to meet their needs. And I've been working with Face and History now for three years, for three to four years, and have benefited greatly as well as my students, just with the expert um, research and materials to provide, and the ideas of empathy and promoting those in class. Thank you. Um, so let's start right in with this question that, that people might be having, and that's that if we're thinking about this question of democracy at risk, um, why do we go to history? Why not just stay with a conversation about current events? And Laura, you mentioned that you in particular have been thinking about this a lot in your work recently, so I'd love for you to start and then to hear from um, Leslie and Robin a little bit as well um, before we turn to Elisa and some of the sociology behind things. Sure. You know, that's such a good question, Mary. And I think part of the answer is just that, you know, I don't know if your cell phone looks like mine with the alerts coming from, you know, news sources, it seems like every five minutes. But um, it, the current events are happening at a mile a minute. There's so much um, evolving information, both in the US, but also outside the US. Um, our understanding is really evolving all the time. Um, and it, understanding what's happening right now and um, and what are the issues we really need to think about can be really, really hard and really, really complicated. Um, and I think, you know, if we care about democracy, if we want to be alert to this issue of um, the health of our democracies and um, are they holding strong or are they sort of backsliding, um, history allows us to slow down a little bit and become alert to the patterns and the trends of um, things that can either erode or sustain democracy. So, you know, at Facing History, we look at the 1920s and the 1930s in Germany to begin to ask some of those questions. And we focus on small steps taken by leaders, by institutions, by everyday individuals. Um, and we can see how some of those choices really contributed to the eroding of um, democratic norms and democratic institutions. And I think in this way, we become more attuned to um, the kinds of questions we, we should be asking when we get all those text alerts on our phone um, or on social media. I think history helps us to kind of um, parse this torrent of information a little bit and um, be more attentive to the issues that we really need to look at. Thank you. Leslie or Robin, would you like to add anything to that in relation to talking with students? I think that it's easy to get lost in the amount of information that's out there. Um, the fact that there's just a flood of real news, 24-hour uh, cable news, and then you add on top of that fake news, that it really becomes hard to sift through um, all this information and to find some patterns. and and just as human beings where we are pattern seeking and um, people are looking for something to latch onto and it's easy to say, um, I, I, we keep calling our, our recent presidents and saying that they're fascist and they're just like Hitler, et cetera, but they can't all just be like Hitler. Um, so how do you decide when to worry or how do you decide that part of it is just the normal partisan politics and that you need to pay attention, but it's not um, an emergency, that the, that the entire republic is not in decline. I mean, even if you take it much further back, like Rome was a republic until it wasn't, and then it was an empire, and then it was neither. 
and it was just crumbled. So, um, you know, part of that is looking at these different things and, and facing history helps us with that. I'm going to pop off in just for just one second. Thanks. Leslie, and I should mention that both of our teachers, Leslie and Robin, are joining us from school sites, and so we know that occasionally students pop in regardless of the webinar sign on your door and need some extra help, so we appreciate both of our teachers joining us in that way. Um, Robin, would you like to add anything to this question around why we, why we look at history or what value we would get in looking at history as we're talking about democracy today? I thought that, uh, you know, Leslie and um, Laura had great points. I think that definitely the students like to think of things as all or nothing. And when we go back and look in history, they're happy to discuss that because it's all or nothing. The Nazis were horrible and evil. And um, and so it gives us a chance to divide that down and look at the parts of that and what did it mean to be a Nazi and how did they get there and um, realizing what small steps were taken and how uh, we receive information, especially when we choose not to ask more questions. And um, one of the things I've been trying to encourage in the Face and History material uses and does encourage is just asking, what is it that I don't know? What is not being said? And I think um, that helps so much with the idea of, of how our democracy is going and what we need to look at further. Thank you. So when we think about facing history, we have the extra part of our name of and ourselves. Same thing with the Holocaust and human behavior. Both are part of the title, which for me as a teacher was always something really valuable. And so I'm thrilled that Eliza can join us here and bring a sociologist's view to this. What does your sociological lens help us learn about how individuals make choices during times, particularly in times of violence or in times of genocidal authorities? Um, as, uh speak just really briefly to what we can learn from history and, and also how that speaks to how individuals make choices. And I think one thing um, that's important to recognize is first, like we can find comfort in looking to history by seeing that people have confronted all sorts of difficult challenges throughout history and found ways to overcome them, to make decisions um, to secure their lives, their livelihoods, a better life for themselves, for the people they love and that they care about. And I think by by finding comfort in that history at the same time, it forces us to reflect on our privilege and why some people may not have, um, may not be or have historically been in the positions that we are in now where some people might feel at risk now or threatened now and can look to history and say, well, look, other people at different moments at different times may have felt attacked by the state or as if the state wasn't working to benefit them, to secure them, to provide them the freedoms and protections they needed to live happy, healthy, secure lives. Um, so, so that sort of comfort in looking at history and a recognition of your social position in relation to the current moment by reflecting on history, I think can help generate inspiration and strategies because you look at how people have fought back throughout history, throughout oppression and histories of violence, and learn from those strategies, be inspired by those strategies, and see what people have done when it felt like all hope was lost, and find hope in that. So when I look at um, how people make choices in incredibly violent contexts about how to act and how to behave, 
the first thing that I really like to emphasize is that people do make choices, right? There are decisions that are made, even in situations where it feels like all hope is lost and there's nothing you can do. Um, or as if, you know, we have no choice. And oftentimes when people study genocide or other forms of severe violence or oppression, classify individuals into these groups of, you know, these are perpetrators, these were victims, these were bystanders. And when we think about choices, we can actually realize that some people might be victims at one point in time, they might be rescuers at another point in time, they might resist participation in violence, rescue, they might be a bystander, they might even participate. And through my own work, I find that there's a couple of different mechanisms that enable people to um, make what we would consider positive choices or helpful choices. Um, and one of them is just, you know, your resources. When it feels like all hope is lost um, and you have no choice and you're living in an incredibly dangerous, scary, contentious, difficult time, um, you can think about what resources do you have. When I did my work on the Rwandan genocide, a lot of people used economic resources to get out of participating in the violence and to try and save people who they cared about so they would pay off the organizers of the genocide and use that as a way to say, you know, leave me alone, leave me in my family alone and to save people. Um, but there's also moral resources. You know, if you're a religious authority or a religious person, you can use narratives of morality to shift people's thinking about the political context. Or you can use social and organizational resources. You can network with other people. If you're a student, network with your peers, network with people in your school. You can use organizational resources, newspapers, writing, pamphlets. I mean, Facing History has all these great examples of these different resources that people used um, to mobilize resistance and rescuing in the past. And I find that um, both in my work in Rwanda and my work in the Holocaust in France, those things were crucial for people who wanted to make positive choices in what seemed like really scary times. Um, that I think is just so important and it comes up again and again in my research and in other research on what a sociologist to call mobilization in high-risk settings is your social ties, your networks. Um, in Rwanda, victimized people were more likely to be saved by someone whom they knew. Um, people who participated in rescue and resistance behaviors were more likely to do so because someone they knew was doing so as well. So it's sort of twofold. And then it, it makes you, again, reflect back on your privilege and say, okay, well, who do I know today that might be in an unsafe situation that doesn't have the resources, that doesn't have the networks that I might have if I'm in a bad situation and I can call my friends and I can call my family, figure out who those people are and start building those relationships um, so that, you know, when push comes to shove, you already have that tie, they have that tie. You can rely on each other and connect with each other. And today, I think if we're learning from history and reflecting back in the US, we can think about refugees who probably don't know very many people, who probably don't have a lot of connections with American civilians, um, or undocumented immigrants who might be afraid to reach out and find people to support them. Well, that's where it comes down to you, someone who's more privileged to form those connections and relationships so that the networks pre-exist the decline and that you know these stronger ties of resistance to form thank you for sharing that um it 
It reminds me of a, a piece that I wanted to share um, later in the in the webinar, but I just have to share it now because it, I think you did such a great job of identifying resources more broadly and the importance of social ties. And it just reminded me of one of the readings that's in um, that's in the new resource that um, that I just adore. And it's said it's about a high school experience um, and a freshman who comes to school on the first day of of the new year, first day of being a high school student, and didn't know like the expectations and the what the environment was going to be like. So he was wearing pink, and he was bullied um, incredibly that day. And upperclassmen saw it, and it the way that you just described, you know, thinking about what are our resources, who are our social ties, who might not have those resources. So these upperclassmen, in in my own words, like they realized what this young person, this freshman was going through, that he had misstepped in the view of the other people at that school. And they put a message around, they went out and bought pink shirts. They put a message around their friends, so their social ties, and they all showed up wearing pink shirts the next day, as did a whole bunch of other people at that school who saw it happening, saw the post on Facebook. And so here, you know, this group of high school students who might say, well, I can't vote and, you know, I don't have a lot of economic resources. They turned the tide immediately for a young person who didn't have that access and who had been excluded and and on a very small level, you know, was experiencing that exclusion that, that we don't want anybody to feel. Um, and and found a way to make their voice heard. So um, I love being able to make that connection to the, like the daily steps that we and choices we might make, and what we might learn from from a bigger resource within this. Um, Laura, yeah. you know this resource far better than I do as well. Oh, sorry, Elisa, did you want to say something more to that, and then I'll, and then we can turn to to Laura for more. I just want to add two things that really stand out about that story. I mean, the first is that resistance is a is a practice, right? We need to practice standing up when things are challenging and things are difficult so that as it gets harder, we're in the habit of already speaking up for people who might not be as privileged as us or of, you know, just mobilizing to protect the more vulnerable. Um, so resistance is a practice. It's a habit. You build it and then it becomes less scary. And also, I just want to emphasize like organization, right? There's power in numbers. So one other kid wearing a pink t-shirt might have helped, but it might have also meant, okay, now two kids are going to get bullied. But then you have a whole group of people who organize together. That's incredibly powerful. So I just want to emphasize how crucial organization is and strength in numbers in these kinds of situations. Can I just make a quick comment? Um, I, it may sound pithy, but I think just that idea that resistance is a habit, right, is, is so important. You know, it, it um, yeah, I think that that, it, like, that's going to be another talking point as well with my students. That it, it's easy to summarize, um, but they need to see how all of their little daily choices to conform or to resist, to be upstanders or bystanders, really adds to the larger social contract that we have. And that we either all join in on this social contract or it fails.
So Laura, I'd love to hear, since you know this resource so well, um, are there other elements of human behavior that you think are really highlighted in this resource? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Mary. I mean, I think one of the things that stands out most strongly to me in making a connection between the history we're talking about and the resource and the human behavior that it reveals and what we're facing today is this question of um, how we respond to, um, to smaller actions that may portend something bigger. You know, one of the challenges that, that I think a lot of educators are facing, and I don't know if the, um, the two teachers on this call have seen this, um, is that there's been this huge uptick, um, you know, over the, last, um, over the last year, and particularly since the election, in incidents of bullying in schools, um, anti-Semitic um, hate speech, um, uh, xenophobic speech and harassing of immigrants in, in schools, we know for sure, and, and also out of schools. And I think, you know, one question we can ask about that in light of history is, um, well, what's at stake in how we respond to these, to these moments, which can seem, um, they, they can certainly be very hurtful to the people involved. And on the other hand, and, you know, some communities really find them um, pretty easy to brush off. And I think, this is a moment where we can really be alert to how the history that we study teaches us about the importance of the norms um, that we live with and what happens when, they're, when those norms are sort of slowly changing around us. Um, when we talk about this history, um, we always foreground it, as everybody on this call knows, with a conversation about identity. And I always love to use this quotation um, from the Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset. He said, I am myself and my circumstances. How do my circumstances, living in an environment where um, you know, xenophobic speech or anti-Semitic speech is um, tacitly accepted or ignored, how does that shape my own identity and my choices? Um, you know, when people invoke Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, you know, as, um, as, as Leslie, I think, said, often that's used as the sort of political weapon, right? It's just a way to, to easily put down someone. But I think um, invoking that history also serves another purpose, and I hope our book really illustrates that. And um, it's that, you know, not every little incident that might happen in a school, not every swastika in a bathroom is going to become genocide. Thank goodness, right? Um, but that history of the Holocaust teaches us how fragile civility um, and human relationships and norms of respect and tolerance actually are. And, you know, I know that, you know, in Elisa's work in, in Rwanda, I'm sure she saw, and of course in the, in the study of the Holocaust, how easily neighbor turns against neighbor and people who were colleagues or even friends um, can experience, you know, can show incredible brutality and barbarism towards each other. So I think that aspect of human behavior, the fact that um, our human bonds really are quite fragile is, is really important to notice, especially, especially in a moment when there is a huge amount of um, political tension and, um, you know, the threats of violence and, and actual violence. And I think we also, you know, something new in, in the research um, that historians are doing about the 1930s and what motivated neighbor to turn against neighbor, what allowed um, people to um, act with hatred or inform on, on people who had been their friends or colleagues, is that it's not just this um, sort of top-down oppression, coercion, propaganda, brainwashing, which is a way that we've often talked about this history, but it's also um, opportunism and self-interest. It's the fact that by um, informing on the Jewish family down the street, you might get to take their apartment. It's that um, you might get to have the opportunity to take over someone's business um, 
by participating in the system, or you might advance your own career by um, by uh, coming up with regulations and policies as a lower ranking member of the Nazi party that would advance Nazi ideas. Um, and those aspects of human behavior, the parts that are not just about sort of um, hatred or conformity, but also about opportunism and self-interest, I think are really important for people to keep in mind when they think about um, the pressures and the influences on the choices that we make every day. And Lisa, I'm curious with your research if that resonates with what you have also found in, in your study. Um, it does resonate. I think it's very interesting because the things that we're finding more in sociological research and historical research, um, even psychological research, uh, the idea that basically there was just this like long simmering racist hatred and a society just came to burst and then everyone killed each other is wrong. Um, and then actually most people who participate in this side don't participate because for years and years and years they hated the people who they peacefully coexisted with and couldn't wait for an opportunity to kill them. Oftentimes the people who end up participating in genocide get pulled into participation for a variety of different mechanisms and some of it could be greed, you know, oh you get this resource if you participate, you can get this home or this tin or aluminum or whatever it is that you need. Um, and sometimes it could be that you don't have the resources to resist. Um, so what you'll find oftentimes is that inequality is really significant um, prior to violent context. And one of the reasons why is because when people don't have resources to resist participation, they're more likely to get pulled into the violence by people who are organizing it. Um, that sort of, there's this, um, dilemma in political science, sort of a, his, like a, a framing of the research where people say, is it greed or grievance? Are people participating because they're greedy and they're things they can get, or because they have grievances against the people who they end up killing? And one intervention that I try and make in my work is like, sometimes it's neither. And sometimes actually not having resources means that you get drawn in and it's more difficult for you to resist for those reasons. It's not because you're looking to kill. It's because you're in a particular time or a place or a setting and you get pulled in. And likewise, I think a, a similar finding that's really important is that um, in a genocide, people almost never kill when they're alone ever happens. So even the person who kills in a group killing every single time, if they're walking past someone who is, you know, I died with the victimized population when they're alone, I'm not going to kill them, but just point them in another direction or them or leave them alone. And so we need to think also about like social pressures, social dynamics, and how those change over time, because I think, you know, adds on to this is in the very beginning of a genocide or a violent context, people do not like killing other humans. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's very hard, even if you look at the military, that we have such high rates of PTSD and moral injury among people whose job is to participate in violence against perceived enemies, shows that psychologically it's very difficult for humans to kill other humans. But over time, the more you do it, the more you get used to it. And that's where the dehumanization process happens. You know, neuroscientific research is starting to back this up. Um, and, and I think that resist early and practicing is so important because you get pulled in once, you get pulled in twice, 
eventually becomes harder to imagine saying no. And then you get used to it so that the things you're doing that at first might have seemed so transgressive, you know, you get, you get used to it, you adapt to it. Um, it's a cognitive shift that takes place, I think is really important to consider. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Leslie and Robin, I would love to bring you in uh, to this as, as classroom teachers and you're exploring some of these issues with your students, using the new resource perhaps in different ways. Um, and, and I'm curious to hear more, and maybe we'll start with Leslie. Um, as you've been studying and using this with your students, um, are there certain readings that have particularly resonated with your students or what questions has it raised for them in studying this history? Um, I think for me, my favorite chapter in st studying the Holocaust was really actually the World War I chapter because it, it seems, it's so easy to make this seem like an anomaly, like Hitler is, well, A, like the Holocaust was led by just one person um, and he's a bad man and he's a monster but that could never be repeated, right? And it's a singular moment in time where everybody just kind of lost their minds of, as if there was a miasma over um, Europe. Whereas if you look at it, um, not even before the Weimar Republic, if you look at it at World War I and what in the early 20th century, what people, what man did to man, right after he industrialized, um, that it becomes easier to understand. And if you look um, at Maslow, I, so I use that chapter a lot, and then looking at Maslow's hierarchy and just how desperate people were both for resources, but just the, the emotional loss and, and um, yeah, the, the, just the desperation through World War One and devastation and, and after World War One, it becomes un easier to understand why people would um, either turn against each other or just turn into themselves and ignore what was going on. Um, and especially like yeah. when you then bring it to a modern context, what's going on now that we have refugees constantly knocking on our door, right? And yet, we're turning them away and not my circus, not my monkeys, right? And to know that that it so could have been prevented in many different ways, um, but people turned away from it. And and to really try and explore why, um, I think that the, the resources for both um, the chapter on World War One and the chapter on the Weimar Republic um, give a, a richer picture of not just what was going on with the rise of the Nazis, but why the rest of the world seemed comfortable letting this go on for so long. Thank you. And remember with my students as well that it, the ability to really think about ordinary people the way that you're describing it was so important for students. And I think for me still hits closer to like why is it important today to think about um to think about history in relation to to the ordinary people and the choices right 
Robin, what about you? What have you, um, or tell us a little bit about how you've been using um, this book or this resource. Um, well, one of the things I think is to know a little bit more about my students. I work in a community that um, is largely Hispanic, anywhere between, I guess the number is about 95%. And a lot of the students I work with, because they have um, learning disabilities, they feel very marginalized and they feel like they are, um, they're not listened to or that they need to be quiet to hide. Either way, I think a lot of times there's not trying to speak forward because they're still trying to hide. And the students I work with, um, most of you would never know that they have any learning disability. There's nothing about them visually or anything like that that you can tell that. Um, and I think that uh, when we talk about th these histories, um, the one of the stories that uh, resources that really um, was interesting to me, to me was uh, number 17, reading 17 is chapter six. And it was a Heil Hitler Lessons of the Daily Life. And maybe it's a strange one to pick, I don't know. But my students, um, the questions in it are so good at the end, but my my students hear a barrage of information every day and um, have really attached themselves um, just to so much negativity and anger at the uh, country and what has happened that they feel like something's being done to them specifically. But also just our issues here in our area um, with police. And it's not so much that there's a big area issue about that, but it's how students that I work with view the police. And part of that is just because even when they are confronted or asked to justify themselves by authorities, because of those unseen disabilities, they have a hard time expressing themselves. And sometimes um, they make poor choices and how they try to explain themselves even to school officials and things like that. And so even on campus, sometimes I'm called in to help them readjust and process that information. The reason that attaches to reading 17, though, and what it meant to my students that day when we, or the few days that we worked on it, um, is about what messages are you hearing every day and what questions are you asking to those messages? Um, how do you think about them? And then looking at that, resource that, you know, we don't have anyone standing on the corner, you know, that we have to say hi Hitler back to. But what are those things being said to us constantly that are changing the way of our thinking? And what are we adapting is true even though we've had no experience or um, no direct relationship with that? And how are we going to deal with that? And how, uh, once we deal with it and question what people are telling us, whether it not, may not even be the government, obviously, but our community or the music we listen to, or um, a comedian, but how are we going to deal with all those feelings and things and how are we going to react and how are we going to accept and how are we going to then treat other people? And um, I think that uh, this just really brought so much out to the students because they're like, there's no way that happened or, or how could that happen? How could that keep going? And we did discuss quite a bit is if that was happening, if that's how your life was every day in this context, how would you respond? And then looking at, now this is how your daily life is, and this is how you're responding. What do you need to challenge? And what do you need to look further into? So um, that's just one lesson that has just meant a lot. The other thing that uh, I do like about facing history, and I don't like about facing history, is that there's so much. And there's such a plethora of incredible materials. And with my students, whatever there is, I have to reduce it down because, um, you know, the vast majority of my students have some type of reading disability. And so whether um, 
it's just vocabulary or if it's trying to put conceptually material together, that's very difficult. Uh, so what I really enjoyed was the one-week lesson plan because it helped me focus some more. Now, it didn't take us one week, um, but it helped me focus and really uh, gave me that goal of trying to get through the whole scope and sequence so that we talked about memorialization, we talked about justice, um, uh, or memorials, I'm sorry, and justice. And uh, that was just another great resource that's on um, the website that helped narrow things down and helped me move our, my students through that. Another thing, if I could say one more, is that because it is a digital resource, I can download um, the resources and just pull out the most important parts of the primary documents. And then the historical part, I can show in a video that covers the information, or we can do a PowerPoint or something like that so that my students aren't confronted with so much um, writing, which actually turns them off pretty high. <laughs> so I try to give it in shorter blocks, and that has been so helpful. So the the making this a digital resource is just essential to having it accessible to my students. Thank you for sharing those. And, and I'd love to pop over to Laura right now because she knows the resource so intimately. And I am sure that not only does she feel that same overwhelm, but she has heard it from many people <laughs> over the time. So um, Laura, are there some other like pieces, special gems, things that people should know to help them in thinking about this resource and kind of what, what to gain from it. Yeah, you know, I just want to say um, that it's so great to hear you, Robin and Leslie, talking about what you're doing in your classroom um, with this book. You know, after being locked in a room with a few other people for the better part of a year <laughs> working on it, just the idea that it's out there and, and someone is um, doing something with it is um, and finding something good in it is is really wonderful. Um, and, you know, people at Facing History, I just want you to hear that um, we know that often you have to work really hard to make um, the pieces accessible to kids with different learning needs. Um, and we have so much respect for that. And we're really thinking about how we can offer more support around that. And some of those, um, the one week unit and some other things that come along with the book are, are part of those efforts to offer more support. So um, as Robin mentioned, on the, um, the, the book is available as a printed book. It's a big chunk, there it is, Mary has it. Um, and then it's also uh, available via a website where you can read it um, all the way through from chapter one to chapter 12, um, just like a regular book and sort of clicking through. Um, but you can also, because it's so big, I mean, there's never any expectation that a person would or could teach the entire thing. The website has a function where you can sort of curate and create your own playlist of readings and videos and other resources that you want to use with your students and save it to go back to. So I think that's something you can do with anything on our website, but I think for a book um, this big, that's probably a good thing to know about. Um, and then if, you, if you're on that site, there's a media and teaching tools section, and that's where you can find the one-week unit that Robin mentioned, a four-week unit, um, also a list of all of the different um, videos that are part of the resource, including these mini documentaries, which as Robin said, are um, usually five to 10 minutes long. They feature really great historians, but also a lot of images and music. Um, and they do the work of giving students a lot of historical context, whether it's a video about um, Hitler's rise to power in the 1920s, 
or about um, the Weimar Republic or a number of other themes about Kristallnacht, for example. They do the work of providing a lot of historical context and then you can share one really great primary source, um, one great voice from history and discuss it with your students. Um, and in that same section, we also have one lesson plan that goes along with each chapter of the book. And that's something that I think might be really useful for educators who are maybe new to facing history and thinking about um, what does it look like to teach the whole scope and sequence. Now those 12 lessons don't exactly add up to make a whole unit. There are some gaps in it, but what they do is they show you how to marry a particular theme like um, human behavior and decision making, a particular resource, whether it's a reading like No Time to Think or Do You Take the Oath, and then a particular teaching strategy and the pedagogy that works well with different types of resources. So for example, if you're in the part of the book where you're really confronting um, life in the ghettos and camps and it's very emotionally heavy and just the work of like bringing your heart to that is, is really hard. We tried to feature some different teaching strategies that show you how to navigate some of that in your classroom. So those are some of the things that I hope um, teachers will find helpful in the um, digital version of the resource. Thank you. Um, we are nearing the end of our um, of our time together, so I do want to make sure that we can um, give everybody like a chance for a final comment, whether a a, a new thought that's coming from today's discussion um, or something else that you want to share with regard to the the theme or the resource. And so. Um, um, Laura, I'll actually bounce right back to you because you were kind of wrapping up in some of those ways, knowing a, a you know a final comment. Any you know final uh, comment that you want to make in relation to the theme or the resource? sure you know I think in the journey of facing history learning, the question that we always want to come to after diving into a, a rich and difficult history like the Holocaust is to ask, how does this history educate me about my responsibilities today? What about me and my choices? What do I do? And so as important as it is to get a sense of all the history and all of its complexity, um, and I, I know teachers will find that in the book, if you wanna be thinking about democracy and community and justice, um, the last chapter of the book, which is called Choosing to Participate, is the place that I think will, and also chapter 11, which is about the legacies of the Holocaust and how in the immediate aftermath, people did also choose to participate to create international institutions, um, and to, to repair and reconcile. I think those two chapters will really provide a lot of insight into thinking about um, the kind of choices that we can make today. Thank you. Elisa, what about you? So I've been thinking a lot about the sort of title of our webinar today in Democracy at Risk. And I think something that keeps coming up for me um, that might be very salient for a lot of people right now is that democracy isn't a fact in the world. It's a practice. We make democracy. And I think ways to understand how, um, what we mean when we say democracy is at risk is to look at times in the past and see what did people do either to secure democratic rights themselves or to protect democratic institutions wherever they lived and to learn from those and try and apply those lessons to 
the present or do you compare across different time periods, see what worked and what didn't. Um, I think the choosing to participate when I was an intern for Facing History 10 years ago, I was working on the traveling exhibit for that. And I just love it because again, it shows you that you can make that choice, right? You can choose to participate and that's what democracy is. It's practicing democracy. It's standing up, being an upstander. And simultaneously, um, the new Holocaust and human behavior, especially on the website, I love the resources of resistance and rescue because again it shows what resources you can use to mobilize resistance or mobilize mobilize rescuing practices um, even when it seems like you might have no resources at all so I just you know that keeps coming up for me and I really want to emphasize that thank you Robin what about you um I think that just the entire resource, one thing I would like to say about this is that there is more in it that is not, that can be used across curricular, across curricular areas. Um, because I know for myself, I don't teach just world history, I teach other units. And I think that the we and they section or chapter as well as the um, choosing to participate, so echoing uh, before me, Laura before me, is that those are really good and can be used in multiple areas and maybe to uh, reconnect students with those themes that we think so, are so important. Um, this reading that we had done, We the People of the United States, that Mary actually in a meeting had led us to, uh, just talking about the women's rights movement and um, things during that period of time, and then all the way to uh, micro lending that was done uh, to help a community, community. And that whole idea of that practice of uh, democracy is a wide range of different ways that people can do that. And so I think those are the positive themes that our students need to do, that um, the resistance isn't only about being in a march, but it's actually creating something instead of just talking against something. And I think that's really important um, with my particular students and how difficult they find the world to operate in is to find joy in creating something and to reaching out and that there's always somebody in need that you can change. And I think that I liked, um, you know, that idea that it's democracy and practice, that it's not just working against things, it's absolutely working for them and to build something. So really applaud this book and just those sections are really great. And I look forward to using them in other courses and not just in my world history class. Thank you. Leslie, what about you? What comes to mind? Um, as I listen to um, both of you, I think about also the... Uh, there's at least one reading, but I think there's several. And Mary, you can tell me where they were again. Um, I know that I've got it cued. Um, but on spiritual resistance and that that resistance um, isn't always armed or isn't um, always obvious. But even within, like in the case of the Holocaust or um, in so many of our students' lives, uh, remaining a quiet dignity and, and keeping your your humanity and and making the choice to live your best self with pride despite the oppression going around is something that our students can um, can learn from as well that when people are trying to oppress you and teach you that you are less than human or less than worthy you're less than a citizen less than American that you're not a real American um, that just the idea of maintaining a sense of pride in who you are 
and leave living a life with dignity is resistance and that that's at least as important as fighting back if not yeah. more yeah i really like that and it echoes some of what elisa talked about in the beginning and thinking about the the moral resources that we might have if we don't have economic resources necessarily um it it also um uh, ties in with with one last reading that I wanted to share because um, there's a, a reading in the very first chapter called One Identity, Multiple Belongings that has just stuck with me ever since I read it. Um, and, you know, talking about in, in a similar way, the, the challenge we each may face in um, trying to live a life where we do have multiple elements of our identity and we're, we don't fit just squarely into the box of being an American or being an immigrant or being a woman or being a man or, you know, other things that way. And, and at one point the author says, if people cannot live their multiple belongings, if they constantly have to choose between one side or the other, we have the right to be worried about the basic way the world functions. And that, and I think that what you all have brought out so beautifully is that the way that you're bringing students into studying history as well as studying ordinary people humanizes in part by showing the multiple belongings and showing our students that they can have multiple belongings and that their identity can be complex, is complex, and that we all can learn from that. Um, so thank you. Um, we are uh, now going to wrap up here, so I wanted to um, to thank all of you one more time for joining this webinar um, and for all of you that are watching this webinar. Um, I loved having this conversation and having it in a way that other people could see it. Um, if you are particularly interested in this conversation, um, then please know that if you are in Southern California, we have an all-day forum coming up where um, I, actually all of the people on this call, except for Laura, we don't have Laura coming out from Boston, but everybody else is going to be part of. So if you want to hear more from Elisa, if you want to see, you know, Leslie and Robin and hear more about their classrooms, you're going to be able to have those connections as well as other staff and teachers during the day. Um, I will also uh, turn over to Laura for a minute. We have an online conversation happening beyond this webinar. Um, and Laura, can you share the details on how to engage with that? Thanks, Mary. Um, you know, for folks who joined this webinar, um, not only because they may teach about the Holocaust, but because they're really interested in questions of democracy, I wanted to let you know that we've been running a weekly series um, on facinghistory.org slash democracy hyphen slash hyphen no, democracy hyphen and hyphen us. So facinghistory.org, democracy and us. And it's a series where every week we talk to a different um, thinker or practitioner around issues of what makes democracy work. So we've talked to um, civic entrepreneur Eric Liu, interfaith leader Ibu Patel, political philosopher Daniel Allen, um, and we make a little short podcast about seven minutes long, and then we give you a bunch of classroom resources to bring that conversation about what makes democracy work into your classroom. Um, you can find us on social media at hashtag democracy and us, and we would love for folks to um, join in that conversation and exploration. And we'll make sure that we send that URL out after the Thanks. webinar as, and, and put it on the website for this webinar. Um, if you'd like to keep up to date on future opportunities, um, I also want to encourage you to sign up for the monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org and follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at, at innovates 
underscore ed. And thanks again to everybody here.